Will you take your Bibles and uh, turn them to Romans chapter 9? We're going to continue in our study of that chapter this morning. We're going to be in verse 14, and we're going to continue on verse by verse uh, as we walk through that. Before we and while you're doing that, I have a little bit of a story to tell. Uh, about March of 2018, I was about an hour, or not an hour, a year and a half out of college and uh, was living with my in-laws, and we had just had John Silas, and I was working at Starbucks part-time, had my resume out to about 50 different churches for full-time work, and none of them ever bit. Nothing happened. I I went through a lot of interview processes. It was a very disheartening time, Uh, but I got to enjoy uh, a lot of of good times with my coworkers at Starbucks, and and one of those coworkers was a pastor's daughter, uh, and she said, hey, well, my dad's looking for a youth minister. Do you want to to apply for it. And I said, oh, sure, you know, tell me about your church. Tell me where your dad serves. She goes, well, he serves at Bihalia United Methodist Church. And I went, oh, okay. Uh, That could be problematic for me. Uh, Many of you may know that Methodist Church was going through a lot around 2018. And uh, I just wanted to make sure what kind of church am I getting to. So she was like, "Just, just sit down and just talk with my dad. I said, that's totally fair. Let's do it. And uh, we sat and we enjoyed a, an amazing conversation. And he assured me on so much and, um, about the church that, that we're in Bahia. And uh, we got to the, toward the end of the conversation. And I said, I just, I want to be upfront with you. Um, you know, you're hiring a Southern Baptist. I'm, I'm not a Wesleyan, uh, which is just a, a way that Methodists interpret certain scriptures, especially the scripture we're looking at today. And he said, okay, well, what are you? And uh, I just, I'm I'm Baptist, I'm a little reformed in that area, but um, that's secondary to me. I just want you to know that that's where I stand. And we talked a little bit about it, and he kind of looked at me toward the end of the conversation and then kind of looked off in the distance and pondered for a little bit. And I thought, oh, here it comes. I'm not going to get the job. And he looked at me and he said, Zach, um, do you love the gospel? I was like, uh, absolutely, I love the gospel. Uh, absolutely, it's, it's the power to salvation. He goes, good. Do you want to share it with everyone you come in contact with? I said, absolutely, in both word and in deed, I want to share the gospel with everyone I come in contact with. He said, it sounds like we don't really have a problem then. It sounds like we can do ministry together. And we enjoyed a year and a half of, of amazing ministry together. I, I sat at his table and, and, was family, and he became almost a surrogate grandparent to John Silas. And, and there's just so many things that I can recall of that time at Bihalia United Methodist Church of all places that God taught me in ministry, theology, and the scriptures from my pastor Stephen. I mentioned that this morning because as I said earlier, this passage that we're gonna be looking at today is a very difficult one. There are all kinds of preconceived notions that many of us have coming into this on how to interpret this section of Romans 9. Um, And I ask you today to hold to those convictions. I don't ask you, I don't want you to change them, but I want you to hold to them with grace and with humility. So that as a church, we can come to the truth of this passage that we can all surround ourselves on. 
Because after all, we are one church under one God and one baptism. So the gospel is what matters. And let's look at what Paul has to say about God and the gospel. Let's open up by reading verse 14 together. Read that, that verse. It says this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. The first thing we need to ask is where is Paul's question coming from? Why is he asking this question? Well, I think if we look back just to the previous verse, we'll see that Paul is referencing the section that often makes us cringe when we read it that says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And this is a a quote from Malachi chapter 1, and this was being quoted in order for Paul to explain why Israel has rejected Christ despite the covenant relationship with God that God had with them, which is actually the whole focus of Malachi, if you go back and read it. Paul explains that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he says this is because of God's electing will proving that God's purposes are not left up to human works, but because of him who calls. Paul's words from the previous passage. Paul is explaining that Jacob was not loved because of anything in him, but because it's God's will to love him. Which brings us back to our question. Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul, again, answers with that resounding, absolutely not, by no means. And so since Paul is all about building his case with Old Testament Scripture, he gives us just right on on the way here two examples from the book of Exodus. Let's read on to verse 15. It says this, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. A little bit of context for where he's quoting from in Exodus. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 33. Israel has gone through getting the law. They've gone through failing (laughs) that law already. Uh, And there's been a lot of dialogue between Moses and God. Moses not very confident in his people. God not very confident in Israel. Yet they come together and God says, I have blessed you. You have found favor in my sight. I want you to lead my people and I will lead those people along with you. I will come alongside you. I've given you all you need to lead those people, which is an amazing thing to hear from God. Um, Have you ever just pondered how Moses audibly discussed things with God? That is amazing. And this affirmation probably left him on cloud nine. But Moses goes a little further. He's actually a little cheeky. He gets this affirmation from the Lord and then He goes, okay, uh, since you're giving me a little bit, uh, God, show me your glory. Now, we know this story where he's hidden in the cleft of the rock, and we often pass by it, and it's a good story. But sometimes I don't think we understand the magnitude of what Moses has just asked. He's asked God, the creator of the universe, to show him his glory. Later on, we read that anyone who sees God's face will surely die. So this is very bold of Moses. I like to imagine this is not in the scripture, so don't. It's my imagination. Okay. I like to imagine at this time there are angels in the desert kind of just hiding out. uh, And this conversation, they're listening to it. 
and there is this one angel, as soon as he hears God, or Moses say, God, show me your glory, he just kind of pops up out of the rock like, "Mm mm-mm, no, like, you can't do that. Like, it's not okay. We have, like, wings and stuff that cover our eyes. Like, it's not possible, Moses. And then something amazing happens. God answers Moses with what Paul quoted us. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This isn't Moses convincing God to do anything. This isn't Moses going, hey, God, um, remember when I parted the Red Sea? That was pretty cool. Uh, How about you show me your glory? And nor is it God going, you know, Moses, since you asked that, and you're a pretty cool guy, you know, you did part the Red Sea, you did do the plague thing, it was pretty neat. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to allow it. No. God says, I'm doing this because it's my will to do it. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on who I have compassion. It's not Moses' merit or will the reason why God does this. Which is why in verse 16, Paul says this, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Through the story of Exodus 33, we see that Paul is explaining that God's mercy is not dependent upon us. God's mercy is not It is his and his alone to give. And church, that is such a good thing. If, if I had anything to do with earning my salvation, I'd not only mess it up, but I'd also be robbing God of his glory. Paul says we have absolutely no reason to boast because the gift of salvation is pure grace and it's for his glory. It's just like the prophet Jonah says in his book, salvation belongs to the Lord. He makes that exclamation in the belly of a big fish after he has surrendered to the Lord to go and preach to the Ninevites. But Paul doesn't stop there takes us to a second example. The Pharaoh of the Exodus story. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says this, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. This verse moves us into slightly more difficult territory. If we recall the story of Exodus, we remember Paul, or Paul, not Paul, Moses and Aaron walking into Pharaoh's court, and they do the cool thing with the staff turns into a snake. They say, let my people go. Pharaoh goes, absolutely not. Not even for three days in the desert, you're not going. But before any of that happened, we have this picture of Moses traveling back to Egypt and having this dialogue with God. And God says this in Exodus 4, do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This was done to show the glory of God by accomplishing his will 
by bringing Israel out of Egypt. And you think about the story of the nation of Israel. Just after this Exodus story, we have quite a few, uh, a lot of reading material from there to Deuteronomy. But then we look at Joshua. And just the very first chapter of Joshua, they arrive at Jericho. What does Jericho do when they arrive? They shut their gates. No one comes in. No one goes out. Why? Well, we learn from the spy uh, that talked to Rahab that Rahab knows what God has done in Egypt. God is accomplishing his purposes through his will. And no king, no kingdom will get in the way of that. And it, honestly, it's, it would be very easiest for us to just to camp here and talk about what will happen later in Exodus uh, and how Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And uh, we can go back and even further. And again, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then and again, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And how, which one came first, the chicken or the egg? And there's so many things to talk about that, but that's really not what Paul's focusing on here. Paul doesn't bring Pharaoh's will into focus in this passage. No, he's focused on the work and the will of God. See, Paul has a, a sovereignty of God in view that is one that topples nations and kings to show his glory. But this statement about Pharaoh is not where Paul ends either. Let's read on. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? It, it's almost as if Paul reads our minds. For conclusion, if we're really thinking about this, wait a second, what does that mean about my will? If God in his power controls both the mercy for salvation and the hardening of hearts for those that reject him, how much say in the matter do we have? What about free will? Where does that come into play? If you're asking these questions, welcome to the club. There, Christians throughout church history have been trying to figure this one out for a long time. And it's because there's this tension in Scripture that is throughout it from beginning to end that between man's responsibility and God's sovereign will. No one in this room would disagree with me when I say something like, your actions have consequences. And most of you wouldn't disagree when I said something like, God is in complete control of our world and not a leaf that falls off the tree in autumn is outside of his will. And here's the answer to how those two work together. I don't know. And that's not an answer that I easily come to. Ask Pastor Jaylock. He'll come to my office and ask me a theological question. And just in case I don't have the answer, I make one up on the spot. Just to make sure I have an answer. I like being the guys with an answer. But when it comes to the subject, the ultimate answer no matter what school of theology you ascribe to, ends in mystery. 
When it comes to the God of the Bible, mystery should be expected. Let me ask you a question. How, give me the particulars on how Jesus rose from the grave. I know you know that it happened. I know that you believe that it's real, but give me like the science or something behind it. I don't know. If you think you have the answer to that one, God bless you. But here's another question. How does the Trinity work? It's a really good question. I really don't know. Ultimately, I know what God's word tells me. How does Paul teach us to handle this mystery between our responsibility and God's sovereign will? Well, I think he gives us an answer in verse 20. Is what it says. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? I told you Paul had an answer. I didn't tell you you would like it. This truth is a bit uncomfortable. Um, and the truth is, is really founded in this distinction that's absolutely immeasurable, which in that distinction is between the creature, us, and the creator, God. And I think we're uncomfortable with this mystery, uncomfortable with this answer, because we all too often have a very tiny view of our creator, God. Paul is, is gonna remind us over and over and over the God of the Bible isn't there for our every whim. He doesn't answer to us. He's the creator of the entire universe. He upholds it by his will and his will alone. More importantly, it's the reason we have salvation in the first place. Paul kind of expounds on this in the next few verses. Here's what it says. Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? These verses are kind of the center of the debate surrounding this passage. There's so many ways to interpret who and what the vessels of mercy and wrath are. Uh, and what is Paul really implying by saying they're prepared beforehand? And I have opinions on this passage, and you probably have a few opinions on this passage, but I don't want us to get lost in the weeds. I don't really think that's what Paul intended in writing this passage. Paul is advocating for the fairness of God. And no matter how you interpret this text theologically, the truth remains that God accomplishes his purposes for his glory through his will. Paul is, is making absolutely clear that election, that is God's sovereign choice, is the way he accomplishes those purposes. Following Paul's logic, God makes the vessels, some for mercy, like he showed us with Moses, and some for wrath, like he showed us with Pharaoh, and determines how they will be used for his glory. That is a tough truth to swallow. No matter what theological paradigm 
you're a part of. Dealing with this issue is not easy. But I want you to see the positive in this. And that we have a God who doesn't react to our world. He is a sovereign Lord over all creation. Everything that happens is done under his will. It's not as though we do something and then he goes, okay, now I have to adjust my plan. His plan is his will, and it will be accomplished because he is God. He makes this point one last time before we finish up our passage. Verse 24 says this. Even us, whom he called, not from the Jews only, but from also the Gentiles. As, as indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah did, the Lord had not left us offspring. We would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Paul not only grabs our attention with Old Testament history, through Moses, through Pharaoh. He also grabs our attention through the preaching of the Old Testament, through the prophets. God's plan has been the same since Moses, since before Moses. And it is carried through the prophets to Christ. His will was never thwarted. In fact, it's because of his will that it exists at all. Look at Isaiah's words. The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. It was all enacted by God at the foundation of the earth. And Paul, quoting Isaiah, says that again, fully and without delay. Isaiah also sees this is only because God left the remnant that he did. The prophet sees that God and only God did this work. God has always had a plan to have mercy and compassion, even of us deserve it. And his fingerprints for that plan are found all throughout Scripture. And if we're honest with ourselves, all of our lives. But now this leaves us with a difficult question. What on earth do you do with that? How do I apply that truth to my life? Well, I think there's two ways that we can do this in a very simple way way. First is that we can trust in God's fairness. I think the reason we have such a big problem with passages like Romans 9 um, is somehow we've latched on to this fact that God owes us something. We think that God is some kind of cosmic butler that just kind of attends to our needs when we call him, and that's simply not the God we find in the Bible. The uncomfortable reality that we must face is that God owes us absolutely nothing. And that's because we are in absolutely no way good enough for a holy creator God. 
we were created to reflect his image, and we failed that. Adam and Eve failed that. Their guilt, go back and see Romans chapter 5, where that guilt has poured out onto all of us. Before salvation, all of us are in open rebellion against the holy God. And now you may think, be thinking, well, Zach, that's a pretty bleak picture. I don't like it. Isn't God love? Do we read over and over and over again that he offers salvation to, to everyone? And I would disagree, or agree with your disagreeing if the story ends there. But it doesn't. What does God do in the face of an open rebellion against his holiness? He sends his son, his one and only son, to give us mercy that we didn't deserve at all. I listen uh, to a band called King's Kaleidoscope, and I've got a few of our uh, student ministry team members into it, maybe a few students as well. But uh, they have a song called Felix Culpa, which is just Latin, which roughly relates to Fortune Fall. They're reflecting on uh, a previous church historian that said, everything in my life has led up to my salvation. Everything in my life has been organized by God that I would come to know him. And reflecting on that, they write this verse. It's the very end of the song says this. And still... I'm a wicked, wretched man. I do everything I hate. I am fighting to be God. I, I seethe and claw and thrash and shake. I have killed and stacked the dead on a throne from which I reign. In the end, in the end I just want blood. And with his blood, my hands are stained. See, the God who reigns on high, he has opened his own veins from his wounds, a rushing torrent that can wash it all away. Grace upon grace upon grace. Church, we have a God who's much, much more than fair. We have a God who is grace. It would be just of God to give us the punch where we are right, but he saw fit to grant salvation to those who will believe, which is much more than fair. Therefore, we can trust God's purposes, that they're good and that our salvation is secure. My question for some of you would be, do you find yourself there? Does the weight of your sin feel overbearing? Do you identify yourself as someone who is in God's grace and his grace alone? If not, if you're feeling the pull to that grace, don't resist it. Come forward, come to know him live in that grace abundant. The second thing we can do is we can share in light of God's fairness. After what Paul tells us about God gives us a, a good doctrine of God, we know that there is not a chance that he will save others. It's in fact his saving of others is going to happen. This is a beautiful picture. We have this call from God in the Great Commission says, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I will be with you. 
I'll be honest, there are times when that, if I look at global numbers of who hasn't believed, that's an overwhelming thing to deal with. But what Paul tells me about God in this passage gives me every confidence that not only am I doing the will of God by being his messenger, he is with me and he is accomplishing his purposes fully and without delay. We have a God who's much bigger than us. The gospel changes lives and it's God's will that we are his messengers I challenge you to be that messenger today. One last thing before I close. As I said, this passage is extremely difficult to navigate. And many of you have an idea of what you believe about it, and it might be completely different from mine, and it might be completely different from the person sitting next to you in the pew. However, if your idea of this passage your opinion of what's going on in Romans 9 causes you to not be able to work hand in hand with your brother or sister in Christ, your idea of the gospel is not big enough. I, I ask you to go back to my original story. Brother Stephen and I are, are still amazing friends. He was a, an amazing mentor to me in my walk with Christ. And we walked into Nate. We shared food with each other. We spread the gospel to Bahia, Mississippi, because that's what we love. I hope your love for the gospel is that big this morning. Pray for me. Pray with me. (laughs)